If you would, please take a copy of God's Word and turn to Isaiah chapter 8. We're going to read from chapter 8, verse 1, to chapter 9, verse 7. Passages have been a little longer in Isaiah, I, I recognize it. One time I read a long section of 1 Samuel at a church in uh, my, my church where I served as assistant pastor in Mississippi, and I said, I'm sorry that reading was so long. One of my elders came up to me and said, don't ever apologize for reading a long passage of Scripture. So I'm not, I'm just letting you know. I know it's, it's long, but I believe the unit sticks together as a coherent whole there. So chapter 8, verse 1 through chapter 9, verse 7, and I will say it's about the same length as the other ones we've been reading. Without further ado, hear God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Then the Lord said to me, take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah, to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, call his name Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother... The wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. The Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloah that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin in the son of Remaliah, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria in all his glory, and it will rise over its channels and go over all its banks. It will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents, in Israel, from the Lord of hosts, who dwells on Mount Zion. <clears throat> and when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living, to the teaching and the testimony? If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. 
In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken is on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessings to it. Grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. Let's ask him now to add those blessings. Let's pray. Oh God, you were good. What you do is good. Give us ears to hear your good word, your good news this morning. Speak to us, Lord, for your servants are listening. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Some names just roll off the tongue. Joe Montana, Tom Cruise, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Other names are more complicated. Emmanuel, Shear Jashub. Saw that one last week. Mahar, Shalal, Hashbaz. Those last few are from a foreign language. They're packed with meaning, however. Emmanuel, God with us. Shear, Jashub, a remnant shall return. Mahar, Shalal, Hashbaz, who is, by the way, Shear, Jashub's brother. The spoil speeds. The prey hastens. Oh, I know, that last one, even with the translation, it's a bit cryptic. Perhaps the J.B. Phillips translation paraphrase will help. Quick pickings, easy prey. Quick pickings, easy prey. In other words, Judah is about to be quick pickings for the mighty Assyrian army that God has hired, it says in 7 verse 20, to judge his people. Quick pickings or, in baseball terms, an easy out. It's like a Cy Young Award winner versus a little leaguer. Later, Isaiah compares the Assyrian invasion to a flood. And yet he will insist that one of those strange names, Emmanuel, will still be Israel's hope during the coming flood of judgment. Most of this passage seems to be focused on the remnant, God's people who cling to God's promises, even as their leaders, kings, and others fall away. And Isaiah seems to tell them, it will get hard and dark and lonely when God's judgment comes, but a light will shine one day that can sustain you even now. That light is named Emmanuel, God with us. But he'll go by many other names as well, as you'll see. Three points this morning. The first one is this. Emmanuel can be your hope even in hard times. 
Emmanuel can be your hope even in hard times. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. To see that, we need to understand the hard times that Judah found herself in. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 8. Then the Lord said to me, Take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. And I'll get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah, to attest for me. These witnesses may not have been Isaiah's friends or allies, which meant they were more reliable. You see, if they later said, yeah, Isaiah did write that down, that prediction, they didn't know it was a prediction back then. If they say he wrote that down before it took place, then people would likely believe it. Why would these guys lie to boost up an adversary? And this message, it's also public but unclear. The spoils speeds, the prey hastens, huh? However, because Isaiah wrote it on a sign so that others could see it, it would likely raise questions. It would attract attention. And only later would it make sense. You'll notice sometime later, starting in verse 3, And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. You see, time's been compressed in this verse. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Mahar Shalal Hashbaz, for before the boy knows how to cry, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Wait a minute, you're saying, is this, is this good news for Judah? They're, they're enemies from chapter 7, uh, Samaria, uh, the wealth of Damascus, the spoil of Samaria. That's Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel who were trying to invade them. Th- those guys are, are, are going to be knocked off. And who's going to do it? Oh, it's the king of Assyria, whom Judah's king Ahaz had, had hired, bribed to come and rescue him. It's the king of Assyria coming to Judah's rescue, wiping out her two current enemies. Great news, right? No, because God has more to say. Verses 5 through 7, the Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Ramaliah. In other words, they're happy because the guys who were trying to invade them have been defeated. Verse 7, Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria in all his glory. And it will rise over its channels and go over all its banks. And as verse, seven, verse 8 says, it'll come into Judah as well. Assyria will not stop after conquering Syria and Samaria. Samaria, also known as Israel, the northern kingdom, or Ephraim, all of those names apply to the same group. Assyria won't stop. Warmongers rarely stop. Neville Chamberlain found that out the hard way. And if you don't know Neville Chamberlain, you need to Google him. And the phrase, peace in our time. One reason Assyria wouldn't stop is what we said last week. God wanted to use evil Assyria to judge his own rebellious people, as he says in chapter 7, verse 20. You see, Judah was in rebellion as well. Israel, as it's called, the northern kingdom of Israel, and Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, they were both rebellious. Israel, the northern kingdom more so, but Judah was was no poster child. Their rebellion is seen in verses 6 and 7. God says, Because you've refused the gentle waters of Shiloh. That was a local 
peaceful stream near Jerusalem that Judah would have known well. God is essentially saying, you've rejected my gentleness. So now you're going to get thunder. Are you happy? So happy that Assyria conquered Rezin and the son of Ramalia. In other words, the kings of Syria and Samaria. Well, party's over. Because next, the king of Assyria will come for you. You didn't want my gentle waters, so instead you'll get a flood. It'll be like the river when it floods. Now, the Jordan River nearby was known to flood regularly. But Isaiah is probably referring to the Euphrates River, which was closer to Assyria. Either way, this, this flood, this metaphorical flood, it'll be mighty and many, rising and raging. It'll have wings like a bird of prey coming to snatch you. The water will rise, he says, even to the neck. Even to the neck. Once upon a time, I took a lifeguard test back in 2000 when I was a camp counselor. One of the final tests was treading water. I, I think it was two minutes. It might have been five. I don't know. I wasn't the best swimmer in that class, but I was good enough. It, uh, treading water that long is harder than it sounds. You see, after a while, you begin to cheat a little. You get tired. So you paddle a little slower to save energy. And you see the water starts creeping up to, to your neck, to your chin, even, even up to your mouth. And then it's time to start paddling harder, you know. In the end, I passed the test. Pretty sure that certification lapsed 15 years ago. Just keep in mind. But the water rose to my neck. But I kept my head above water. Just barely. And that is what's going to happen to Judah, to God's people. The flood will come. The water will rise. Judah will almost be wiped out. Her land will be filled with the waters of judgment, the mighty flood that was the Assyrian army. It will rise to her neck, but only to her neck. Some will succumb, but some will survive. Because a remnant shall return. As Isaiah's son's name testified in Isaiah 7. But there's another name of greater importance in this passage. Did you catch it? Look at verse 8. He's talking about the flood, the river overflowing. Verse 8, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land. Oh, Emmanuel. Emmanuel? That, that baby to be born of a virgin who may not be around for a while? Who will sustain the Davidic dynasty? Why is Isaiah mentioning him? Because Judah's land is actually Emmanuel's land. Isaiah says so. And if the land belongs to him, then oh, he, he is at least a king and probably much more. And you get the sense that this distant king somehow gives God's people hope even as the flood is coming, even as hard times are coming, a remnant shall return. Those who cling to Emmanuel, when everyone turns against him, and there is something about this remnant that is downright defiant. Now, not rude, not crass, but defiant, confident. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. Listen to Isaiah speaking for the remnant in a way. 
The ones who hear God's message from Isaiah's mouth and actually understand. Isaiah is their spokesman in verses 9 and 10. He says, Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. It's as if Isaiah is calling out to Assyria and her army even as she is bearing down on them. And it basically amounts to this. Come on and get us and you will be crushed. Yes, you will be crushed. Why are they able to say that? For God is with us. That's how verse 10 ends. But if you've been listening to the Hebrew 101 lessons for the past few weeks, then you know this. It's the same thing the ESV footnote says. Verse 10 essentially ends by saying, For Emmanuel. For God is with us. God with us. It's a name. And what a powerful name it is. The end of verse 8, the end of verse 10, they look exactly the same in Hebrew. Emmanuel. Emmanuel is their rallying cry. Their anthem. There's an old song that goes, This is my anthem. This is my song. The theme of my story I've heard for so long. God has been faithful. He will be again. His loving compassion, it knows no end. All I have needed, His hand will provide. He's always been faithful to me. One author points out that the believing remnant adopts the language of Isaiah 7-7, God's language to them. They believe God's promise that King Ahaz rejected. One author says, For them, Emmanuel is not only a king to come, but a truth to live by in the present moment. It is the secret of their steadfastness. What do you do? Actually, what do you need? That's the real question. What do you need when the flood of life comes at you? When the foreign armies invade, when you suffer because of the sins of your leaders as you remain faithful, when economic disaster and other stuff comes, what do you need when hard times come? I'll confess that the first thing I usually want is for God to change the circumstances, to remove the hard times. Has anyone asked God to change your circumstances in, say, the past 15 months? I don't see many hands. I have once or twice. Is that what I need most? Or do I need the defiant hope that Emmanuel provides? Do we need God to remove us from the hard times or to remove the hard times from us? Or do we need to know that God is with us in the hard times? Even in the valley of the shadow of death, the valley of deep darkness, even then God is with me. His rod and His staff, they comfort me by fighting off the enemies, by guiding me along the path. What do you need? You need to know that Emmanuel can be your hope, even during hard times. And secondly, Emmanuel can be your hope even in lonely times. Emmanuel can be your hope even in lowly times. You see this in the next 10, 12 verses here, 11 through 22. Now his name isn't here, but God with us is still here. Still with us in verses 11 through 22. I'll admit I've chosen one aspect of this section as my title for the whole section. But it seems to me 
that the life of the remnant, those who are left, those who are not dragged away by the cares of this world, the remnant's life is a lonely life with hard choices. After all, Peter calls Christians a peculiar people. The holy life we're called to, it will look weird at times. It will look like a weird life at times to others. And it may be a lonely life at times. But Emmanuel can be your hope even in lonely times. Verse 11, For the Lord spoke thus to me with His strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people. We'll see what he says in a moment. But Isaiah is speaking for the benefit of the remnant, the faithful. He's calling them to this unique life, not walking, quote, in the way of the people. The maddening crowd does what the maddening crowd always does. You need to resist, Isaiah says. God says to Isaiah, even if you're alone. Verse 12, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. What were the people calling conspiracy? Some scholars think there was a growing dread about the Syrian and Sumerian armies that wanted to team up, invade Judah, and overthrow their king. But Isaiah says, stop paying attention to the mob. Stop listening to their fear-mongering. Stop listening to their conspiracies. Now, even some Christians have not been able to resist the conspiracy culture at times. Maybe that's not your struggle. Maybe it is. But surely we might all benefit from something I read months ago, a Gospel Coalition article that advised readers to be discerning about what they read. Gave several pieces of advice. At one point it said, does the argument that you're reading at any one time, does the argument require a level of highly elaborate clandestine scheming such that only the most disciplined, organized, and intelligent people in the world could pull it off? Question to ask. 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 and 22 says, We need to test everything. Hold fast what is good and abstain from every form of evil. Let's read verse 12 again, but read it with the next two verses. It says, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, Him you shall honor as holy. Let Him be your fear. Let Him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense, a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. You see, if we fear God, the lesser fears will fade away, such as economic fears, social changes, the possibility that things will go wrong. What things? Anything. Or that I might secretly have offended that person. Lesser fears fade away. And how do we fear God appropriately? How do we regard or honor Him as holy? Ray Ortland Jr. says, Dare to treat God as God. Don't respond to life in a way that makes God look helpless, weak, and worthless. Don't respond to life in a way that makes God look helpless and weak and worthless. Another author says, Reverencing Christ means really... To believe that Christ, not one's human opponents, is truly in control of events. Now thinking that way is hard. It's unique. It can be lonely. We're called to do this. We're called to fight this good fight. And keep in mind as I talk about fighting, this fight is 
is primarily an internal fight. It's a battle not against flesh and blood. It's against powers and principalities, what you might call satanic thinking. (laughs) On occasion, when I'm discouraged, I ask myself, what would Satan want me to think? And I try to think the opposite. I don't do it as much as I should. But I try to take every thought captive, my thoughts, to know that God is in control, to know that God is sovereign, to filter out whatever ungodly thoughts the enemy might want me to think, killing my sin so that it won't kill me, killing my sin and not my neighbor who disagrees with me, killing the sin of my mind so that I might live and think more righteously. Romans 12 verse 2 comes to mind. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Again, that's it's not the way the world lives. It's not even the way every Christian lives. But it's how we should live, even if it's lonely. The alternative, you see, is no better. God can be your dread and fear so that he becomes a sanctuary, a hiding place. Or God can become a stone of offense and stumbling, the stone that the builders rejected. What follows in verses 16 through 22, it highlights these these two choices. Choice one is the wisdom that is found outside the Bible, the wisdom of the world. We could give a thousand examples of what that looks like. In verse 19, it involves communication with the dead as if that could give more wisdom and light and insight than communing with God and His Word. And the end result in this case is clear. Verses 21 and 22, it's darkness, it's the gloom of anguish, it's thick darkness. Choice number two is what Isaiah has already laid out, waiting and hoping in the Lord, even when he sees to hide from his people in verses 16 and 17. Rejecting the world's ways, verse 11, verse 19, clinging to the teaching and the testimony. To the teaching and the testimony, Isaiah says. That's what we should be doing. And again, not everyone will do that. And it leads to one of those awkward conversations. Are you sure that you're one of God's children who has nothing else to cling to except the gospel of undeserved grace? When the hard times and the lonely times come, are you sure that that is who you are, that is what you're doing? Of course, even if you know that answer, even if you can say, yes, I am a child of God, it still may not take away the loneliness. But what if Emmanuel can be your hope in lonely times? What if God with us can sustain you during coming invasions, despairing thoughts, lonely thoughts? Years ago, Henry Light wrote this, Jesus, I, my cross, have taken all to leave and follow thee, destitute, despised, forsaken, thou from hence my all shall be, perish every fond ambition, all I've sought or hoped or known, yet how rich is my condition, God and heaven are still my own. The second verse says, oh, while thou dost smile upon me, God of wisdom, love and might, Foes may hate and friends disown me. Show thy face and all is bright. I read a book published in 2018 that said America was facing a crisis of loneliness. How much more true is that now? 
How much more do we and our neighbors need to know that Emmanuel can be your hope even in lonely times? The last thing we see is this. Thirdly, Emmanuel can be your hope forevermore. Emmanuel can be your hope forevermore. This is chapter 9. We may cover this section again the next time we look at Isaiah because, well, the, the Prince of Peace, this famous passage deserves that in a way. We'll see. But this section, it shifts, excuse me, too many S's. It shifts from present judgment and the need for that lonely, persevering faith to future hope, to future hope. It shifts from darkness to light, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish, verse 1 says. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter times, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. It shifts as well from Judah to the northern kingdom, to Galilee of the Gentiles. Zebulun and Naphtali were northern tribes. They were among the first tribes to be uh, deported, exiled, conquered in the 8th century B.C., but years later, they will be the first to see the great light. And because it was Galilee of the Gentiles intermixed with other nations, Gentiles is basically the word for nations, other nations, Gentiles like you and me would begin to hear the gospel. No more deep darkness, valley of the shadow of death for them. Now the light it would come in the form of peace. Shalom is the Hebrew word meaning tranquility, no war, as well as prosperity, fullness of blessing. That fullness of joy is seen in verse 3. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. And the cessation of hostility, the tranquility, the no more war. That's seen in verses 4 and 5. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken is on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior and battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. All the war stuff will be no more. You see that in, as well in verses 6 and 7. This is why Emmanuel can sustain them even in present times. A war-torn country will finally see joy and light and peace. And shockingly, surprisingly, God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us is a child. In the words of Ortland, verse 6 says, For to us a child is born. For to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Wonderful Counselor reminds us of the question that God asked Abraham, Is anything too wonderful for God? This child will be wonderful. Emmanuel is not just with us, he is God with us. Mighty God. What other kind of God would a distressed, lonely people need? As someone once said, bad leaders inflict pain. <laughs> Let's start over. Bad leaders inflict pain. Good leaders bear pain. They use their might for the sake of their hurting people. Such is our mighty God and our everlasting Father. 
By now you probably figured out, hey, I think this is talking about Jesus. This divine child that's going to be born. It's going to be the second person of the Godhead. God the Son. So why is he called Everlasting Father? Because just like the mighty God who uses his might for his hurting people, this Father is a picture of what a king and ruler should be. One who loves his people like his own children, who defends and conquers all of his and all of our enemies. Just like a dad who sees his kids getting threatened and is ready to throw down at a moment's notice. Even with a bully who's twice his size, ready to unleash our inner Liam Neeson. If you don't know the movie reference, we'll talk about it later. Prince of Peace, it says. Now wait, peace? Uh, I, I, you've, been, you've been doing all the warrior fighting points here. Eh? That's the point. Ralph Davis calls this peace in a nasty world. One who has power to bring and enforce peace. And if you don't think that's what you want in a savior, ask yourself this. Next time you get mad reading or watching the news, what do you want if it's not this? Don't you want someone to come calm down the crazy and the nasty and make things right? Because that's what this child will do. David's future son, also known as Emmanuel and many other names, he will do this. Verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. His kingdom will grow and grow far as the curse is found. And, and you may doubt that's possible. It was said that World War I and World War II killed a lot of optimism for humanity that existed in the early 1900s. 2020 might have killed your optimism. Oh, and if we're honest, some of us never really had much optimism to begin with. Those of us who call ourselves realists, because it sounds better than pessimist. How will all this good stuff come about? How will we ever see this joy and light and peace and prosperity in perpetuity? How will we see it? Did you notice the end of verse 7? I left it off. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The commander of the angel armies will do this. His zeal, what one person calls heaven's hot and holy energy to get things done. The Lord's burning passion to pull off his plans. That is why this king's rule and reign will grow. That is why his peace and prosperity will grow. That is why his justice and righteousness will be established and firm from this time forth and forevermore. God's burning passion will bring it to pass. His zeal. The reason God calls his people to a persevering faith, even in hard times, calls us to a lonely faith, even in lonely times, is because he knows that it is and will be a forever faith. See, Emmanuel may not fix things as soon as you want, but he will be there with you, with us, during the trouble. And he will never let you go. And he will make all this good news happen. Paul says, if in Christ... We have hope in this life only. We are of all people most to be pitied. 
The reason Christians can cling to Emmanuel, God with us, during hard times and lonely times is not because it isn't really that bad or because it could be so much worse. The reason we can cling to Emmanuel during all times is twofold. One, He is with us right now. And two, He always will be. Let's pray. God, we confess our faith is like shifting sand. The moment the light of your presence fades, the moment things shift one degree worse than they were before, we are prone to doubt, prone to forget. Would you remind us that you are with us? Would you remind us that you will be with us from this time forth and forevermore? We may not see every blessing yet from this passage but we can see them in part. We can see enough to know that you are good, that you are God, and that you are with us, and that you will bring them to pass. You have been faithful. You will be again. Oh, God, be with us. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.